Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you are doing well, and hard to believe tomorrow is Friday, uh, but then again, for some of you, uh, wherever you may be living in the world, it, it is already Friday. Uh, but nonetheless, I'm uh, looking forward to the fact that tomorrow is Friday and that the weekend will soon uh, be here before us. I will say this, um, the uh, podcast segment episode uh, for this evening that we will be discussing uh, regarding our series, The Battle of Lake Champlain, A Brilliant and Extraordinary Victory uh, by John H. Schroeder. We're going to be talking about the... Um, we're going to be talking about the Champlain Valley. In other words, we're going to learn um, a great deal of history, not only about the Champlain Valley um, as a region, uh, but we're also going to learn about uh, the people. In other words, where do the people stand behind this uh, war? In other words, are are there people uh, for this war or the, are there uh, people opposed to it? Uh, we're also going to figure out um, how... Uh, People, most notably along the border, the U.S.-Canada border, um, corresponded to this. In other words, uh, prior to war breaking out in 1812, we have to uh, go back a few years uh, before and find out what uh, both sides, being U.S. and Canada, uh, benefited from. But um, as we had learned from a previous podcast episode about a, a particular piece of legislation and its uh, repercussions. Some of you probably already may have an indication of what I might be referring to legislation-wise, but it is something that uh, should not go unheeded, uh, given that um, for those people living along the U.S.-Canadian uh, border, even at the start of the 19th century, uh, it would be fair to say that um, trade relations had uh, some form of um, negative uh, repercussion uh, with regards to the um, legislation that we'll be uh, talking about uh, briefly. Uh, we will also um, find out um, exactly um, where uh, the majority of, um, of uh, people whom resided um, between the New York State and Vermont line, given that uh, Lake Champlain uh, borders both states. We'll uh, find out um, which, which of the um, sides had more people uh, living um, per that side. And we will also uh, get to um, get introduced to some new um, officers. Officers, that is, on the American side. Officers whom are of a different breed. Officers whom are uh, different from their uh, predecessors. To me, that's a good sign. But then again, from the uh, previous podcast episode, uh, when I was on the air last, we talked about how in 1813, the United States had made progress in this uh, war. Perhaps it's fair to say that the United States was a bit better off in 1813 than it was starting out in 1812, given that um, Commodore Oliver Hazard Perry's uh, naval fleet defeated uh, Robert Harriet Barclay's uh, British fleet at Lake Erie. And um, as a result, uh, an entire British fleet surrendered. The United States has... Uh, not only just control of Lake Erie, but as a result, General William Henry Harrison's forces are able to eventually go back into Detroit, retake Detroit, and defeat um, the British at uh, the Battle of the Thames, or what's known as Moravian Town in southwest Ontario, 
to where uh, Tecumseh's uh, Confederacy broke apart. So the Americans do have momentum, but as a new year dawns, a lot of other challenges lie ahead. And that's what we're going to be uh, discussing in this uh, podcast segment episode. I must say, this one's going to be a six-pager, so um, I'm already four minute, just shy of four minutes and 30 seconds in, so I, would, I think it'd be fair to say that we better get the show on the road now, because with a six-pager, you know, just like with any other um, segments I do, you get an hour, but an hour goes by faster than one would like to believe, especially with the information that, um, that we uh, cover. Uh, we've got to make the most of every uh, minute there is. So uh, I think it's fair to say that we better get the show on the road before it's too late. So here we go with our uh, first leadoff uh, question to this podcast segment episode uh, to the Battle of Lake Champlain, a brilliant and extraordinary victory. So here we go. What is the Great War Path? I'm sure many of you are uh, wondering, what does uh, Kirk refer to when he is saying, what is the Great War Path? Well, the Great War Path was part of a large network trail system in eastern North America that got created and used by Native Americans. And this uh, Great War Path, folks, stretched 1,200 miles from Quebec, Canada to the north and far south as Alabama in the Great Appalachian Valley, or what we might think of as like the Appalachian Trail, given the Appalachian Trail does go as far south into uh, the northernmost parts of Alabama and Georgia and does go all the way up into um, into northern Maine, especially into uh, Canada, bordering the uh, northernmost parts of uh, the state of Maine into Canada. And when I think of... Um, the northernmost parts to the state of Maine in terms of mountainous regions, I often think of the uh, Allagash uh, Mountain uh, Wilderness. Well, as for Lake Champlain, um, the lake itself lied right in the thick of the Great War Path. From a militaristic standpoint, given that the uh, military region or the area extended 200 miles from Ticonderoga, New York, in the southern end, being Lake Champlain's southern end, all the way north into Montreal. 200 miles, especially for Lake Champlain, uh, that's very uh, remarkable, uh, to say the least. So yes, Lake Champlain is right in the thick of this uh, great war path. Now, uh, when we get to uh, 1813, Lake Champlain has played more of a secondary role given that uh, naval um, activities, or I should say combat, was more prevalent along Lakes Erie and Ontario. There was some off-and-on uh, naval activities which took place along Lake Champlain, but neither side had yet established a, ma- a major presence along the lake. So yes, you get these off-and-on naval activities, what we might call little naval skirmishes, where we're just engaging, both sides are engaging in harassing activities. You know, 101, where we can fire uh, some guns at the uh, at the opposing um, at the oppo- at the opposing um, fleets um, vessels, where the intention might be to um, damage one or two vessels and hurt a couple of um, sailors along those vessels to where they are no longer able to be in action. 
but at the same time, you know, the majority of the uh, men um, have been diverted elsewhere to, you know, Lakes Erie and Ontario, where uh, greater uh, combat fighting along the waters is taking place. Now, uh, prior to 1812 and afterwards, and what I mean by afterwards, I'm not talking like, say, 10 years after the War of 1812 ends, but prior to 1812 and afterwards, meaning that after the war has begun, did more people live along the New York State side of Lake, of Lake Champlain versus Vermont? Uh, the answer is yes. Roughly, believe it or not, folks, roughly 61,000 people were living in the New York Shore uh, counties. And what I refer to as the New York Shore counties, I'm referring to counties like Essex, Clinton, Warren, Washington, Clinton County being home to where uh, Plattsburgh and Champlain are. And when I think of Essex County, I think of a, a village um, village being uh, Lake Placid, home to the 1932 and 1980 Winter Olympic Games. Of course, 1980, the miracle on ice. Uh, hard to believe um, we're approaching the 44th anniversary of the miracle on ice when a group of college kids... 20 college kids, uh, there's 19 of them left living now. One of the uh, former um, U.S. hockey players of that 1980 team passed away about five or six years ago. Bob Souter was his name. And, of course, uh, the late Herb Brooks died about 21 years ago. But a group of college kids, uh, not um, respected nor feared, did the improbable. They defeated the mightiest uh, empire in the world from a... um, not only from a hockey standpoint, but from a cold from the Cold War, uh, Americans were down. Um, our our hostages, uh, our own people, were being held hostage against their own will over in Iran. We didn't know when uh, the end would come with that, and we beat the Soviets on our own home ice. We finally had something good to feel about. So when I think of Essex County, I think of Lake Placid, and uh, of course my wife and I went there back in the summer of 2010 for our five-year anniversary, and uh, that's a a neat little village. If any of you have not been to Lake Placid, I strongly recommend going. It's well worth the time. Clinton County, home to the town of Champlain in 1810, had a population of uh, 8,000 as for Champlain, um, New York, there were 1,200 residents. Plattsburgh, being the vital gateway to the Champlain Valley, was home to 3,112 residents. And Plattsburgh had 78 houses, a courthouse, two newspapers, along with um, facilities where, large numbers, where a large number of military supplies got stored. So you can see by... Um, the breakdown in numbers here that um, that yes, a majority of um, Lake Champlain's people are living along the New York State side. Given there wasn't full broad support once war broke out in June 1812, where did the people of the Champlain Valley stand? In other words, were they totally opposed to this war or were they in favor of it? Or is it fair to say that they simply just had a lot of mixed feelings. If you ask me, I think it'd be fair to say there was a lot of mixed feelings. In other words, it was 
probably fair to say maybe 50-50 or 60-40, 60 in favor, 60% in favor, 40% not, but I think it's fair to say it's more 50-50. You've got 50% that are in favor, 50% that are not. Uh, people, I should say the people um, residing in the Champlain Valley, most notably along the northern end, expressed a great deal of uncertainty and fear given they demanded strong border protection from the from local and state officials. If you live on the northern end of Lake Champlain, um, most notably in Champlain, and of course Champlain, if you look at a map of uh, New York State from the uh, northern end of the state, Lake Cham- uh, Champlain itself is near the um, United States-Canada line. It's not too far from Montreal. So if you live in Champlain, I, you would have every right to be fearful of uh, of an attack out of nowhere where um, you have uh, British-Canadian um, troops whom could partner up with um, Indians whom are living in uh, Canada, and they could come in the middle of the middle of the night and launch a surprise attack, not just a surprise attack, but multiple surprise attacks from uh, different uh, directions to the point where uh, people's uh, lives are in jeopardy. If, you, if you're a resident of Champlain, just think, if, you, if your border isn't protected, then you are very vulnerable to invaders coming from the north down south to dis- not only disrupt your way of life, but could uh, destroy everything that you've uh, worked to uh, successfully earn. Well, I do know that... Uh, Five years earlier, when uh, the Jefferson administration enacted that infamous Embargo Act of 1807, and I tell you, that Embargo Act, I mean, as I've said before, and I'd say it again, yes, it looked great on paper. Yes, if we stop trading with Britain and France, then they'll come to their senses and realize that, hey, they should they should no longer be harassing our tro- our sailors. They should leave our sailors alone, respect them, allow us to um, navigate the waters freely without any means of intimidation through impressment. Well, the legislation looks great on paper, but as we all have learned, it lost its luster when it affected real people like thousands of New Englanders, say up to 10,000 of them, who are now without jobs. Not only are they without jobs, but exports declined drastically. They declined almost 90 million um, from from a year's time, from 1807 into 1808. So the Embargo Act of 1807 along the United States-Canada border, as a result of that legislation, trade declined drastically. But come 1809, by the time Thomas Jefferson has left office, Come 1809 and around the time of war in 1812, smuggling along the uh, along the uh, border between both nations reigned supreme. And as a matter of fact, it reigned so well that uh, there was really no means to enforce uh, smuggling. But that's how uh, people living in the northern end of New York State were able to make up for their um, deficits as a result of that uh, infamous Embargo Act. Matter of fact, it took about two years. It took at least two years for the Embargo Act to be lifted, and it was replaced with a different uh, piece of legislation. I want to say it was called the Non-Intercourse Act. 
You know, it's amazing that, you know, legislation, yes, can be for the better. It can also be for the worse. But, you know, yes, we want to be, um, we don't want to um, be harassed on the seas. Yes, it may be a bad, not be such a bad idea to, to ta- have a, um, a temporary halt from trading with, um, with a nation that, you know, you may not have had the best, uh, ter- best relations with. Things are modified somewhat, but not 100% modified. But when you um, enact legislation like the Embargo Act, it is a complete reversal given that exports were one of our biggest um, sources of revenue in terms of um, in- ensuring that the government itself was operating. Whom arrived U.S. officer-wise come October of 1812 to command naval forces along Lake Champlain? His name is Lieutenant Thomas McDonough, spelled M-A-C-D-O-N-O-U-G-H. Last name, that is. Lieutenant McDonough was just 28 years old when coming to Lake Champlain, and he did so on the uh, Vermont side in Burlington. Prior to his new assignment, he had been um, assigned head command to a fleet of gunboats defending present-day Portland, Maine. He was brought into the new position at at the time in which uh, Navy Secretary Paul Hamilton still held his post which he would do so until, um, I, I want to say until, um, I, I want to say until, uh, I, I'm not, I can't remember uh, for uh, Paul H- Hamilton, but that's uh, for whom, um, and I do apologize uh, if I uh, may have uh, forgotten their little mishap folks, but nonetheless, uh, Lieutenant uh, Thomas McDonough was brought into this uh, new position through Navy Secretary Paul Hamilton. What makes Thomas McDonough very unique is that, um, well, for one, he's very qualified for the um, assignment before him, given he was seen by others as resourceful and energetic, full of vigor. He's very detailed in preparation and planning. In other words, he's just not going to sit back and say, well, this is what we're going to do because I've done this before and never had a problem before in the past. Why should I have a problem now? No, uh, Thomas McDonough's uh, one of those um, officers who, uh, for one, is a different breed of officers. He is part of a new generation of officers, and he was born um, around the time uh, leading up to the uh, Treaty of Paris of uh, 1783, which uh, ended the um, Revolutionary War altogether. So, it is fair to say that he uh, probably did have family um, who uh, fought in the war, but he's not like the other officers from the generation before whom um, were past their prime. This guy at age 28 is well into um, his prime, but from a younger age standpoint. Besides having supervised uh, construction of gunboats, what else did um, Lieutenant McDonough bring to Burlington, Vermont, come October 8th? That's when he arrives into uh, Burlington, Vermont. He brought an immense amount of shipbuilding and logistical information. Well, one challenge that he had when arriving onto Lake Champlain was that uh, only two gunboats were functioning. As as well as a presence of six sloops, 
which were not all the same. In other words, what I mean by which weren't all the same, meaning they were of differing sizes, you know, differing lengths, but they all weren't uniform, meaning they all weren't of the uh, same kind. So what um, Lieutenant McDonough does is um, he goes about taking uh, three of these um, sloops. One would be uh, the name the President, one was originally called the Hunter, but later was called the Growler. And then you had the the Bulldog, renamed Eagle, all got converted into naval vessels, whereas the, the other three sloops served as army transport vessels, given their hulls were not stable for arming uh, purposes. In other words, their hulls were just, I guess you could say they were somewhat weakened, and if they were somewhat weakened, that means that they're not going to be able to support um, proper um, proper struct or what do you call? It? They're not going to be able to support structures where uh, guns can be placed uh, to fire at uh, uh, to fire along against the opposing side. Thomas McDonough is an officer who doesn't waste any um, valuable moment. He's looking for something new. He's looking for something different. He, it's probably fair to say that he's looking for many ways to uh, reinvent uh, the system from within. In other words, he knows that um, he's on borrowed time, but he also knows that he can make a difference. He can shake um, the cobwebs out of the trees. He can shake the rust. He can do anything to um, replace the old with something new. So he goes as far is overseeing the building of over 100 bateau uh, vessels. When I think of bateau um, vessels, they're not um, super huge, but uh, bateau uh, boats are uh, what we call rowboats. They are uh, rowboats that are designed to uh, transport uh, goods, service, you know, say goods and uh, people, usually from point A to point B across uh, rivers. And the same could be said for lakes. And bateaus were very uh, prevalent on Lake Champlain as they uh, unarmed rowboats designed to transport men and supplies across Lake Champlain. Now, when I think of um, bateau um, here in Virginia, I often think of um, the James River um, I don't know if they do this anymore, but for years they used to do a bateau boat race event along the James River out towards uh, Bedford County, not far from um, Thomas Jefferson's getaway retreat home, uh, Poplar Forest, which is open to the public. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, when he uh, came to Poplar Forest to get away from all the um, from all the inter- uh, what he deemed as unnecessary entertaining at Monticello, he needed to get away. And he did have a river nearby his house called uh, the Ravana River, which still exists today. But over time, he found the Ravana River to be um, unstable. In other words, it was a lot more shallower in the Ravana River to where um, bateau boats simply could not move very effectively from point A to point B to where he instead turned to uh, the James River um, around uh, Poplar Forest, which is in uh, Bedford County, halfway between Roanoke and Lynchburg, Roanoke to the west and Lynchburg to the east, where he would um, have uh, goods and various other items shipped from um, from that point in uh, Bedford County to, say, 
Richmond, uh, Virginia, or along other parts uh, going eastward that the James River uh, flowed into. So um, Thomas McDonough's uh, warships were um, also uh, responsible for monitoring the northern end of Lake Champlain as well as protecting transports of troops and supplies. Was British access to Lake Champlain limited? Okay, if you're on the side of the British, is your access to Lake Champlain limited? Believe it or not, folks, it is. And I was kind of surprised to uh, learn of this when uh, reading this book, but it was the case. This was largely attributed to a uh, cut from the lake's northern end. You know, it's easy to assume that, oh, lakes are just the same um, from one end to the other. They have that same shape, and, you know, it's just one of those uniform straight lines. Not necessarily. So, again, this was largely attributed to a cut from the lake's northern end where the flow of water emptied into the Richelieu, Richelieu River, which is in Canada, which for the British meant that they were forced to stay put at Isle aux Noix along the Richelieu River. So, in other words, um, by having a um, limited uh, access to Lake Champlain, it's going to be a, little, a lot harder to um, to get um, vessels in and out of the lake per that um, section but at the same time, if you have smaller vessels that can be a little bit more uh, sturdier and easier to navigate versus larger vessels, then you might have uh, better means of modified luck. As for Lieutenant Thomas McDonough, he was able to look to uh, places such as Burlington, Vergennes, and Plattsburgh, including other U.S. establishments, for resources and supplies. So, you know, yes, he's in uh, Burlington, Vermont, but he doesn't have to rely necessarily on Burlington, Vermont itself. He can turn to other towns um, along Lake Champlain in Vermont. He could do the same even for New York State as well along um, the New York State side of Lake Champlain, given that, um, given that you know, uh, say ferry boats can uh, make their way across uh, the lake. They still do that today. They, they offer a ferry service from parts of uh, New York State along the uh, Adirondack coast there into, um, into the Vermont's coast uh, through um, Lake Champlain as uh, the Green Mountains uh, border um, uh, Vermont's uh, Lake Champlain side. The winter of 1813 saw... Uh, Lieutenant uh, McDonough recruit workers to coordinating purchase and shipment of provisions necessary to design vessels. I tell you, recruitment is something that's going to get mentioned, and it's going to be one of those things that's going to be very, very challenging. It, it will not be something that will go away. There's more good news to report in that forges and foundries are present around Burlington and Vergennes, for metalwork, whereas naval provisions and guns are coming from New York and New England. Ah, and speaking of recruitment, uh, was one of Lieutenant McDonough's hurdles involving manpower. Yes, this was greatly attributed to overall lack of broad support for the war within the greater Champlain area. Here again, folks, 
the Champlain area is not alone. Several other areas are um, are sharply divided over this war. However, if you go into Kentucky and Ohio, that's a whole different story. Remember, we learned in the West um, there was greater support for this war, and that was largely attributed to uh, the faction of the Democratic-Republican Party led by House Speaker Mr. Henry Clay of Kentucky. Now, why um, is there um, a reason why um, Lieutenant McDonough's um, issue with um, manpower um, challenging to him? Well, naval duty per small-sized ships along lakes such as Champlain did not appeal to a lot of men, whom chose instead serving within their local militia or volunteering within army, where recruitment bonuses were higher. Well, shoot, who wouldn't want to go where, say, a bonus is going to be higher? But just because it's higher, it doesn't mean that you might be willing to to make additional sacrifices. It doesn't mean that um, that maybe you might be committed to the cause long-term. Yes, a bonus is great, but money doesn't dictate how you should... Um, money should not dictate your level of commitment to a cause. You could um, receive all the bonus money you want, but if you're not deeply committed to a cause before you, then you should not be participating in the cause itself. Did the naval situation on Lake Champlain suddenly change come spring of 1813? It just so happened it did, folks. Come April of that year, the U.S. vessel president ran aground. And when a ship runs aground, that usually means that it has... Um, hit a uh, shoal, meaning a, a rock that's, um, you know, that's um, v- very visible in shallow waters to where it could tear a, tear a ship's hole uh, to where the ship itself is ruined. It's no longer salvageable. Cargo's lost, revenue lost. But for a U.S. vessel president, she ran aground per a shallow part of water near Plattsburgh, only to follow come May, the next month, when a gunboat overturned in Cumberland Bay. Come June, against McDonough's orders, Lieutenant Sidney Smith led the Growler and the Eagle on the pursuit of uh, British gunboats to Lake Champlain's north end. I tell you, this is where... um, Lieutenant Sidney Smith should have had a, a little bit more common sense. Uh, he should not have um, been playing with fire. This is where some officers have to learn the hard way. And, you know, it's bad enough. Okay, it's one thing for, um, say, if you're in Lieutenant Thomas McDonough's shoes and you did not authorize this. It's another thing for someone below Officer McDonough to go against orders and still go through with this. To me, that should be like an automatic court-martial. So for Lieutenant Sidney Smith, he led the Growler and the Eagle on pursuit of British gunboats to Lake Champlain's northern end, only for the Eagle to get sunk in shallow water and the Growler surrendered. Gosh, I thought the British had limited access to Lake Champlain. Well, they do, but at the same time, just because you have limited access... 
That doesn't mean you still can't score a victory. If you have the right um, strategy and you have the right leadership, you might be able to um, twist. Um, you might be able to um, throw in a couple of twists and turns to where, to where under the most uh, dire of um, challenges, you can actually come away with a, a knockout uh, victory, even if it's not a grand one. But at the same time, as a result of the Growler surrendering. The British folks captured 100 American sailors and crew. It's bad enough if one ship uh, sinks in shallow water, only for the other one to surrender, and you have 100 sailors. It's not like you could just call up and tomorrow and say, hey, I need 100 more sailors to replace the 100 that got captured. <laughs> for Lieutenant McDonough, he's forced to retreat south to Burlington and regroup. If I'm uh, Lieutenant McDonough, I do not feel very good right now. I just don't. But Lieutenant McDonough also doesn't have time for a pity party either, too. He's going to find a way to regroup and modify the situation because he doesn't want to uh, give up anything, um, not just vessel-wise to the British, but he also doesn't want to lose Lake Champlain. So uh, we're going to um, now revert back to someone that we learned from um, the second episode to the series. Um, remember um, Sir George Prevost? Yes, um, we're going to now uh, start talking about him here. And I'm sure some of you were beginning to wonder when, we, when would we be going about uh, mentioning his name again. So uh, what uh, did British Governor-in-Chief George Prevost of Canada conduct come late July 1813. He ordered a raid on Lake Champlain with intent on gathering military intelligence, plundering public buildings, to creating disruption. You know, yes, disruption, creating disruption is vague. It can be 101 disruption. It can go beyond 101 disruption. Perhaps the disruption that um, British Governor-in-Chief George Prevost of Canada is looking for is disruption that could um, disrupt America's way of life, not just from day-to-day living, but perhaps disrupt our government to where maybe our government will no longer function. Maybe Prevost is wanting the United States as a country to fall apart to where just maybe she might return as uh, subjects to the crown. After all, you know, the United States neighbors to the north, being Canada, are subjects to the crown, and they like being subjects. Of course, uh, General William Hull, before he was um, let go of, wanted to liberate the Canadians. They told him flat out, hey, look, we like being subjects to the crown. So we're not going to um, surrender our loyalties, despite the fact that you may have opposite. July 29th of 1813, into the 31st of that month, uh, British troops under Lieutenant Colonel John Murray's command entered Plattsburgh unopposed. It's one thing to enter unopposed, but what did they do, folks? They burned the town's arsenal 
the arsenal folks, that's where, you know, gunpowder would have been, um, other military equipment, most notably pistols, uh, muskets, rifles, all things essential in order for a militia to uh, function. So the arsenal has been burnt. Warehouses have been burnt. Um, Lieutenant Colonel John Murray's um, forces vandalized private property and homes. So can you imagine if your home, including your own personal property, has been vandalized, set set, um, ablaze, You've lost everything. It's not like you could just call State Farm Insurance and say, hey, I've my house just went up in flames. Um, am I going to be covered for the losses? No, you don't have that luxury. So you think about this. Now all of a sudden people's lives have been uprooted to where um, they have now been forced to take an extreme 360 backwards turn. And to make matters worse, uh, from August 1st to the 2nd, British naval forces attacked coastal towns along Lake Champlain, including destroying multiple vessels. Another setback for uh, Lieutenant McDonough. I can't imagine being in his shoes right now, but this just isn't good. Uh, what information did spies provide to Lieutenant McDonough in January of 1814? The spies themselves advised him that the British were building a large warship at Isle en along the Richelieu River. Well, it's one thing to be building a ship, but a large warship, I mean, for all we know, this warship could have about 50, between 50 and 60 guns. It could be about three times bigger than what could be the uh, largest um, U.S. warship uh, to be built on Lake Champlain. So for the United States Navy, they have to turn to um, an outside company, but this company is no stranger to this war. The company is at, well, they are two brothers, but they run their own shipbuilding company. Uh, The brothers' names are Adam and Noah Brown of New York City. They had a very strong record for building reliable vessels in a timely manner. That's good to know because you don't always get to take your sweet luxury time in building one. As we all know, there are deadlines, and deadlines have to be met. And if they aren't met in a timely manner, then it's a matter of make make it or break it. So yes, um, what I found interesting about Adam and Noah Brown was that they were hired by the United States Navy in 1813 to build Commodore Oliver Hazard Perry's fleet on Lake Erie, February of 1814 saw Adam and Noah Brown assemble necessary men and equipment behind building the 26-gun warship Saratoga, including six gunboats for Lieutenant McDonough. It's probably fair to say that the 26-gun ship Saratoga would be the um, the largest of this uh, fleet, the flagship. What happened overseas in Europe come early April 1814. Napoleon Bonaparte was defeated, leading to his abdication, meaning the British government had greater means behind sending extra veteran troops by the thousands into Canada for invading United States territory. 
In April of 1814, also saw Britain send Vice Admiral Alexander Cochrane to North America, where he became the new lead commander. Yes, uh, you know, Europe may be 3,000 miles away across the ocean. And yes, it could take a couple of months. But the good news, if you're on the British side, is that you've already established um, success. Not only in 1812, you've established some success in 1813, mixed. But the biggest boost you're going to get is you're going to have thousands of more men arrive in enough time to where new um, missions will uh, be embarked upon, missions that are uh, deadly, missions that are meant to um, disrupt the United States government to the point where the ultimate objective would be to um, see to it that maybe the United States no longer exists. That's a terrible thing to say, folks, but I think it's fair to say that the War of 1812 was also a war on terror. What were the objectives for Vice Admiral Alexander Cochrane to achieve, given he was an aggressive commander? And it should be um, worth mentioning that the commander before him, while he was a, a good leader, he just wasn't as aggressive. And maybe that um, could have uh, attributed to why the United States uh, prevailed on the waters at Lake Erie in 1813, why we may have prevailed at Moravian Town at the Battle of Thames, as well as, uh, re- as, well as um, recapturing Detroit, along with um, our victories at uh, Fort Meigs and Fort Stevenson in Ohio, um, defeating um the Indians at um, in the Indiana Territory. You know, with all these victories in the West, we were able to um, reclaim uh, possession of uh, the Northwest. But as for um, Alexander uh, Cochran, Vice Admiral Alexander Cochran, and the objectives he was to achieve, for starters, he was instructed to increase and enhance the current existing naval blockade of the U.S. coastline, Secondly, Cochrane was to deliberately create a detour course which involved helping British forces in Canada by going after desirable targets on the United States coast, most notably along the Chesapeake Bay. And, you know, we do have to be reminded, folks, that the Chesapeake Bay, for one, is one of the, uh, is, it's the largest estuary in the United States. It encompasses more than just Maryland, Virginia, and Delaware. The Chesapeake Bay believe it or not, folks, has tributaries that flow into uh, Pennsylvania, uh, New Jersey, all the way into New York State. So um, believe it or not, folks, I mean, it, it's a uh, very, it, it's not just so much a large body of, of water that flows into, say, the Atlantic Ocean or into other rivers like the Potomac or the Rappahannock and the uh, Patuxent River in Maryland, uh, the James River in Virginia, the York as well. Uh, Shenandoah River, um, Pamunkey, uh, just to name a few of many rivers. But uh, the Chesapeake Bay is going to be the most vulnerable. I mean, truly, it's going to be the most vulnerable um, target in which the United States government is going to be ill-prepared. For um, 
Vice Admiral Alexander Cochran, he is to be he's going to be supported by um, men such as Major General Robert Ross and Lieutenant General Sir John Sherbrooke, whom advocated targeting naval bases to the north like Lakes Erie, Ontario, and Champlain, uh, stations along those areas. May 26, 1814, Lieutenant McDonough's fleet comprised of six new gunboats and five warships. The five warships were the 26-gun frigate of Saratoga. Then the other four warships were Ticonderoga, Prable, President, and Montgomery. June 7th, spies informed Lieutenant McDonough that British that the British were engaged in building a large frigate with over 30 guns. The USS Saratoga, the American flagship, has 26. Although Britain had begun building a new frigate or warship in spring of 1814, did construction of this new uh, warship face issues? It turns out, folks, there were. Britain lacked skilled workers. She also lacks naval supplies as well as raw materials at Isle Isle Onois. You know, it's so easy to assume that, well, everybody has the materials to build uh, a vessel. Not necessarily. You may have people, but if you don't have the right materials to build the vessel, you might get it built. It may just take a lot longer. So if you're the, the British and you've got... Um, issues, or I should say challenges, with regards to constructing this new um, warship, what are you going to go about engaging in? You're going to find people uh, along the border, south of the border in the United States, who are willing to um, engage in actions that some people would say are unbecoming, improper. Some might even say treasonous. Well, People in the United States along the uh, U.S.-Canada border in northern New York are going to help um, British officials and leaders rely on, uh, they're going to help them out through uh, means of smuggling. And one item in particular that is that, that got uh, smuggled over to the British was lumber, raw material. You need lumber, folks, to make uh, these um, vessels. I mean, we don't have anything like aluminum or steel. I mean, aluminum itself, I mean, it is around, but we don't have the technology to be building aluminum aluminum, uh, ships at this time. We're still relying on wood. Now, as for the name of the uh, British uh, frigate that's under construction, or I should say warship, uh, her name is HMS Confiance, C-O-N-F-I-E. C-O-N-F-I-A-N-C-E, HMS Confiance. Now, uh, while the ship is under construction, um, United States forces are not taking any chances. They are conducting um, water raids, naval-based, from late June into mid-July, resulting in reduction of smuggling goods to the enemy. Uh, Lieutenant McDonough does not like the fact that goods have been smuggled over to the British, But one thing he was smart enough to do was to conduct raids. And by conducting raids, it reduces further um, activity along the water via smuggling. It can't eradicate it 100%, but it could reduce it between 25 and maybe just shy of the 50% threshold. 
So uh, July 18, 1814, Adam Brown comes to Lake Champlain and told Lieutenant McDonough that he got 200 skilled uh, crewmen to help construct a new warship. August 11th, USS Eagle is was officially launched. It took less than three weeks to uh, build USS Eagle, while HMS Confiance is still behind schedule. I'm beginning to wonder if these um, naval raids will play a factor over time with um, de- not only some not only with regards to delaying HMS Confiance's launch but when actual warfare uh, takes place between both nations along the lake itself. You, you just got to wonder, but, but we might want to hold on to that, um, what do you call it, factor. Whom became the new army commander in the Champlain Valley come uh, May 1st of 1814? His name was Major General George Izard. I-Z-A-R-D. I know that sounds like an odd last name, but that, that, that's what it is. Major General Izard was 37 years old at the time of new role. All right, here's another young fella who's very much in his prime. He was born, believe it or not, folks, in England, October 1776, three months after the newly created nation of the United States officially declared its separation from England. Come November of 1794, at age 18, he became a lieutenant in the newly created U.S. Corps of Artillerists and Engineers, which is probably now referred to in today's time as the U.S. um, Army Corps of Engineers. January 1800, he became a personal assistant, or what we would refer refer to as an aide-de-camp, to former Treasury Secretary Alexander Hamilton, Remember, folks, Alexander Hamilton uh, served as an aide-de-camp to uh, General George Washington. For um, George Izard, he uh, stayed in the Army during the Jefferson administration. Well, actually, I take it back. He left the Army during the Jefferson administration due to military cutbacks. Yes, I... um, I love learning. I enjoy learning about Thomas Jefferson, and uh, he was, he's one of my favorite uh, Virginians to learn about. But political wise, uh, this is where the uh, anti federalists or Jeffersonian Republicans don't like the idea of a standing army and would prefer to engage in as much uh, milita- military cutback as possible, most notably in times of peace. Uh, who was second in command to Major General George Izard? That was uh, Brigadier General Alexander Macomb. Well, Brigadier General Macomb is 32 years of age. He's a West Point graduate. Hey, West Point was established under Thomas Jefferson's presidency uh, the year after he initially took office in 1801. Uh, West Point was established in 1802. As for um, Brigadier General Alexander Macomb, he served as an Army engineer for seven years. He joined the artillery branch after uh, the War of 1812 started. He commanded troops at Sackett's Harbor, uh, New York, to participating in General Henry Dearborn's 1813 York and Niagara campaigns. Major General George Izard was stationed in uh, Plattsburgh, whereas Brigadier General Alexander Macomb was leading troops in Burlington. So both men and their forces, uh, respective forces, are not far apart from one another. Something tells me that um, 
well, something tells me uh, that McDonough and those below him, despite um, Sidney uh, Smith's actions, which were um, not um, properly called for, um, but uh, it 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 appears to me that um, that in Champlain that we've got um, some right men at the right time who are going to make a difference when it is going to be sorely needed. I think they're already making a difference now, but time will tell when the real test um, comes before them. Early July 1814 um, saw the the overall number of U.S. troops at Chazy and Champlain reach around 4,500, which is a very good number, with an additional 600 troops working um, on fortifications in Plattsburgh. Early August 1814 indicated potential for an actual battle on Lake Champlain to take place. It's not a question of if it's going to happen. It's going to be a matter of when. And when it does happen, how well is the United States going to be? Not just from one side, but from two sides. How well are we going to be ready to go Navy-wise and Navy and Army-wise? Are we going to have the right leaders at the right place at the right time? commanding men, many of whom probably have never even seen um, combat experience, whether they're on water or, or by land. The question is, are they going to us, are they going to face the enemy in the darkest of hours? Are they going to um, are they going to rise up? Are they going to take a stand? Not only are, are they will they do this not only for themselves and for the um, the military, are they going to be doing this for America? After all, folks, Lake Champlain um, has seen some action, just some small action, but it's just a matter of time before Lake Champlain is going to be one of those vital spots where America's fate is truly at stake. I think it's fair to say even as of right now, America's fate is at stake. Yes, we've made some great strides. I mean, 1813, as I mentioned earlier, did produce some great strides and um, winning at Lake Erie, uh, along the waters of Lake Erie with Oliver ha- Commodore Oliver Hazard Perry's forces, as well as General William Henry Harrison's victories at Fort Meigs, Fort Stevenson, recapturing Detroit, uh, going into Moravian Town at the Thames, uh, the British having to give up Fort Malden. So, we're we're on a good path. We're we're on a better path. However, there is so much more left to be done. Well, yes, early August for, early August of eighteen fourteen did indicate potential for an actual battle on Lake Champlain to take place. Shipbuilding per each side had gone smooth, despite HMS Confiance still not being ready to launch. Major General George Izard, he's waiting anxiously to get moving. However, he has to get approval from the War Department under that of uh, Secretary War Secretary John Armstrong to move all of his army from the Champlain Valley. Unfortunately, uh, the American public is totally unaware of Britain's troop buildup or fundamental objective. 
that fundamental objective, folks, is to uh, strike at the heart of the of the Chesapeake Bay, which would include such places like Baltimore, places, various places in Delaware, Maryland, well, other parts of Maryland, Virginia, what we would think of today as the northern neck of Virginia. And yes, uh, the British did um, launch... Uh, uh, attacks by water along various uh, places along Virginia's northern neck and um, disrupted many of people's livelihoods. But this um, fundamental objective, uh, it, it's not uh, so much an invasion of Lake Champlain. And yes, an invasion of Lake Champlain is very likely, but uncertainty or the unknown or unthinkable that would soon follow was was one that aimed to cause havoc, disrupt a way of life, all of this being further south of Champlain. For the British, if they can strike the government, strike at the core of the government, government will no longer be able to function. Britain still is trying to send a message to the United States that, hey, look, you can impose embargoes on us all you want, but we still reign supreme on the waters. Uh, we still have um, authority along your lakes. Sure, you may have defeated us at Lake Erie. Sure, um, Tecumseh may have lost his confederacy, but hey, we're bringing in the whole nine yards. We're going to uh, bring in more men than you could ever imagine. More men meaning that it will become more and more difficult to find your own, to find men on your own side to come and defend your coastline. Your coastline, not just so much being the Chesapeake Bay, but what lies to the north of the Chesapeake Bay, most notably um, the waters of the Atlantic Ocean bordering into Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, New York City, Boston, Massachusetts, present-day Portland, Maine, Portsmouth, New Hampshire, Newport, Rhode Island, you name it, places up and down the eastern seaboard that whose vulnerability, um, whose vulnerability is so high that Yet we simply just don't know. We just aren't prepared. In other words, we don't have a um, a color coded system that um, rates us from elevated to um, alert to um, being um, seriously. Um, they they uh, inst- the the government instituted a um, security code system after nine eleven happened. And uh, it one, and it was a very interesting one. I think it's still in use today. But um, but this is what I'm getting at, folks. Is that uh, yes, we've seen success. We are a bit better off now than we were in 1812. But 1814 um, is going to be uh, one of those years that uh, really could make or break the existence for the United States as a young nation, given that she has turned 38 years of age on July 4th of 1814. Well, thank you for your time as always, and when I'm uh, back on the air again next, we're going to talk about the British occupation of Plattsburgh. Thank you for your time as always, and wherever you may live in the world, uh, continue to stay safe. I look forward to being back on the air again with you all next time.